from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Good evening. My name is Greg Hartley from No Circuit, Pennsylvania, Intact America, and I want to welcome you to the Pittsburgh stop of the uh, Cut film tour screening. It's called Cut, Slicing Through the Myths of Circumcision. And our uh, director and filmmaker, Eliahu Unger-Sargon, is very proud to present it. So let's give him a big Pittsburgh welcome. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I want to thank the whole network for helping sponsor this 30-city North American tour that I'm on right now. And uh, I'd like to thank Greg and Sandy for uh, doing the local organizing and Greg for his hospitality. Um, so the way things are going to go tonight is I'm going to stop talking. We're going to start watching the film. It's 70 minutes long. Uh, after we watch the film, we're going to uh, go into a question answer session. Uh, so I'll open it up for questions and Greg will be going around with this guy here, a little wireless microphone. Don't try to take it from him. He'll, he knows exactly where to keep it. Um, I know, you know, you, you sort of have a tendency to want to take a microphone when someone's putting it near you, but just let him put it near you and, and, and the podcast audience will thank you. Um, they'll be able to hear well that way. Uh, second time I've seen it, it was even more powerful. Well, thank you. And the soundtrack I noticed was Fantastic. I didn't really think about it that much the first time around. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, everyone, again so much for coming. Uh, let's open it up to question and answer. Anyone have a question they'd like to ask me? Um, well, actually, two things jumped out at me. Um, uh, Dr. Marks, she said that the babies cry as soon as their diaper is taken off. And yet, when she was performing the circumcision, the baby did not cry when its diaper was taken off. It did not cry when the straps were put around its legs. He didn't cry when the cold stuff was swabbed all over his penis. Not a peep until the clamp tightened. That's when he screamed. Do you think that was the first time it ever went that way? Do you think every other baby Dr. Mark circumcised cried as soon as the diaper came off? Or do you think there's a disconnect going on in her head? And do you think if she watched the movie, she would notice? that what she said wasn't true? So it's very astute of you to, to notice that. Um, of course, I felt that it was much more powerful to have her say that at the beginning of the film and show the circumcision at the end of the film than to have a talking head sort of tell you that, you know, that the babies really feel pain. Um, and yes, I do think there's a disconnect. I think Dr. Paul Fleiss has spoken about this most eloquently from personal experience, from having done a number of circumcisions himself, I think dozens or even hundreds of them, and he speaks about how he literally did not hear the babies crying. Um, and I think that that's evidence of a, a profound psychological mechanism at play in which the practitioners are literally taking leave of their senses for the duration of the procedure. Uh, and one of the interesting things about that scene is that you actually hear Dr. Marx having this internal dialogue with herself and then with the baby. And I have to believe that my mere presence there with a camera 
punctured that defense mechanism for the first time in maybe her entire career of doing these procedures. Uh, so yes, definitely a disconnect. Maybe not a question, but just a few comments. Uh, I'm from Turkey, I'm a secular Muslim, so in the Jewish tradition, uh, babies are circumcised, uh, male babies are circumcised at, uh, while they're uh, eight days old. Uh, but in Turkey, we are, uh, Turkish males are circumcised at the age of ranging from six to 10, but not days old, like years old. Yep. Uh, and without anesthetics or anesthesia, it's really cruel because I remember a little bit about my own circumcision because I was six uh, years old and I watched the circumcision of my peers, which were like 10 years old, kind of. And circumcision in Turkey is always performed with like three or four injections of anesthetics. Otherwise, it's never performed without anesthetics. And uh, after watching this uh, movie, thanks very much uh, to you first, uh, I'm convinced that circumcision is detrimental to male sexual function because uh, I'm a molecular biologist and I'm having a PhD right now. Uh, and the nerve cells endings, which are supposed to be at the penis head, as well as the foreskin, is helpful in maintaining and keeping the erection. And even in females, uh, I'm uh, knowledgeable about the female circumcision in Africa, which is a cruelty and against human rights and removing like clitoral region of females is really detrimental to their female sexual function. So why are we keeping doing this to male sexual function? I mean, I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm never against the idea of circumcision on uh, moral or religious grounds, but I'm just discussing it scientifically. If you remove or deprive a person of his or her sexual functions, then it's weird. <laughs> yeah, weird it is indeed. And I mean, I would I would never discuss it with my father because in Turkey, if a female would get married before the wedding, male has to be circumcised. I mean, this is a society tradition. If you challenge it, then you will be uh, seen as devil or kind of unwanted or persona non grata. I can't explain you're, you're, this. You're giving very good descriptions for how a lot of people see me. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe, uh, or it's difficult for me to perceive uh, your uh, point of view here because uh, you were raised as an Orthodox Jew and challenging an Orthodox Jewish tradition is more difficult because I was always secular because I was uh, raised in a secular neighborhood. My mother doesn't cover her hair or my sister doesn't cover her hair. So it's easier for me to uh, challenge the idea of circumcision, but for you it should be more difficult. It is more difficult for me, and um, all of the things that you said about uh, people sort of looking at you like a devil or whatever, yeah, I get that. Um, uh, but I, at the same time, the things that you said at the beginning about the sexual function and about human rights apply to Jews as well as Muslims as well as Americans. And um, we've actually progressed a little bit further even from the, the, the time that I put my film together in 2007, um, there's recently been some more research into this field, and a pathologist, I, I believe a New Zealand pathologist by the name of Ken McGrath, uh, has done some more connecting of the dots, as it were, 
in terms of male sexual experience and the ways in which circumcision affects it. And if, if you indulge me for a few minutes here, I can explain to you what he's found because I think it dovetails beautifully with some of the uh, data that I presented here. So we talked about in the film the Meisner's corpuscles, the 20,000 estimated, 20,000 nerve endings in the distal ridges of the foreskin. Well, uh, what Ken McGrath is starting to do with some other folks is um, actually tie those nerve endings to actual neurological functions. And one of the things that he, he did, I think, beautifully in a recent video um, was he talked about how circumcised men, after they have an orgasm, their glands become so sensitive that you just have to stop everything. Everything's got to stop. This is something that any circumcised man can relate to. It's just something that happens. You have an orgasm. You have to stop if you're having sex moving, if you're masturbating, moving your hand, whatever. It, everything's got to stop for at least, you know, a few seconds, up to 10 seconds. Um, and what McGrath showed was that um, the reason that intact men don't have this, and I bet you didn't know that, but intact men do not have this very intense period in which it's, you can't touch the penis, is because there are interneurons in the spine that respond to the stimulation from the ridged band, and they basically de-innervate the nerve receptors coming from the gland's penis. And a circumcised man doesn't have that feedback he doesn't have the sensation coming from the foreskin because there's no foreskin. So he has this malfunctioning glans penis, which at the moment of climax, which if you're with a partner is the moment at which you should be sort of most in, into it and most enjoying and you have to stop everything. So I think um, there's, and I think there's a growing body of evidence about specifically these sorts of things sort of, and it's again, very difficult to talk about the content of any human experience. And when you talk about the content of a sexual experience, it becomes very difficult. But with efforts like um, you know, some of the histological studies that I presented and some of the work that McGrath is doing, we're really starting to understand what are the effects on male sexual experience. Um, many years ago, when I was young, um, I had heard that the, um, I guess in the, in the old days, the rabbis, that when they circumcised, they used to use their uh, saliva uh, and they would spit on the wound to uh, help stop the bleeding. Is that true? Um, it's not entirely true, but it's not entirely false. There is a practice called mitzitza bepeh, which is part of the traditional practice of any orthodox circumcision to this day. Um, and the traditional mitzitza bepeh involves directly after the cutting of the foreskin and the tearing away of the mucosa, the mohel puts his mouth on the freshly cut wound and sucks. Um, mitzitza means suction. And it was believed that this was supposed to aid in the healing process. It's spoken of in the Talmud and the Mishnah, along with other kinds of remedies like using cumin on the wound. Um, but when the germ theory of disease came about in the late 19th century, uh, it was recognized that um, certain babies, far from being helped by this practice, were actually being infected by this practice because some percentage of the population have, um, you know, herpes, oral herpes. It's just sort of, I think, some crazy percentage, a very high percentage of the population just have oral herpes. That's the people, when you see they have cold sores on their, on their lips, they have herpes, uh, a herpes infection. That herpes infection was being transmitted. There are other kinds of infections, of course, but herpes is the big one. Uh, that was being transmitted to the infants, and infants were being infected. And so what the rabbis, some of the rabbis at the time did, where they, they said, and this was in the late 19th century already, just as the germ theory of disease and people started to understand these things were, was coming about, 
They said uh, instead of direct oral to genital suction, use a, a tube. And the current contemporary practice is that they use um, a sterile pipette or a tube if you're orthodox. There are still members of the orthodox community who perform direct uh, oral to genital suction, mitzitza pipette, and they are the Hasidic Jews mostly because the Hasidic Jews are uh, of a mystical orientation and they believe that every single stage of the circumcision ritual has theurgic meaning and significance. And so to use a tube to them would defeat a very important spiritual part of the practice. Uh, it should be mentioned also that in um, 2005, two babies died from uh, herpes infections from this practice in New York. And as far as I know, the Mohels were never brought to justice and they're still practicing. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think whatever you think about circumcision, that is a travesty, and it's a blot on the uh, New York Health Department that they didn't have the balls to do something about it. Well put. Uh, thank you for coming. This is an, an incredible movie, but in my mind, I've, you know, I've watched it like five times. It never gets easier. And you just let people speak for themselves, and in a sense, they indict themselves. So my first question is, for instance, Dr. Phyllis Marks. Does she look at this practice differently now, seeing it down in color and, and you know, what she says and she's arguing, they're there, it's not my fault, it's, it's all right. You know, like, like you said, that dialogue was just stunning. And that, that dissonance has to come conscious to her or does she avoid this movie like the plague? I just wanted, to, especially the it's not my fault part, that was very uh, striking. Yeah. Well, I mean, she did come to the premiere, and I, I got an email from her saying, you know, if you'd like to talk to me about this further, I'd be happy to discuss it with you. But I never did follow up with, with Dr. Marks. Um, I, who knows, she might come to one of the Chicago screenings, um, which would be interesting. It's been, it's been a few years. Um, but documentary filmmaking is full of situations like that where, you know, you're in very complex ethical territory. Um, I do feel um, that I have a commitment to the people who were willing to take the leap of faith and be in my film, because it's really an um, enormous amount of trust to put in someone, and I take that responsibility very seriously. But my responsibility to my subjects does only extend to a certain point. Um, I, I don't look at the people who practice this as villains. I see them as um, to a certain extent, I see them as victims. I think that, um, that what I was talking about before, that they literally take leave of their senses, that they literally can't hear the babies crying when they're doing it, um, is, a, is an indication that they are, they are being dehumanized. Um, and I, I'm not trying to absolve individuals of responsibility for their actions. That's really not what I'm, what I'm suggesting. But, um, this practice is so deeply embedded that the vast majority of people, including the practitioners, don't even give it a second thought. Um, and so, you know, part of the thing that was really moving to me about that scene was seeing her struggle. And again, I didn't open my mouth. I didn't say a word. I was just there with my camera. That, that was it. I mean, admittedly pretty close. But um, I was there with my camera and just my presence there with a the camera forced her to reconsider what was going on. And 
I feel for her when she says it's not my fault. That must have been a very difficult thing for her at that moment. So, yeah. Well, uh, let me just add here. I think it shows that disconnect very clearly that it's not my fault, and she probably really believes that. But the bottom line is, and I agree that it's not, I don't think everybody that's involved in this practice is a villain, most majority are not, and they're just so trapped up in it that it's hard to escape. It's hard to look at it objectively. Yeah. Your comment about the New Zealand doctor, was it McGrath? Yeah. Okay, I haven't followed up on that. I didn't know, so I will. Um, there's an essay by a rabbi, Yadaya, apparently a contemporary with Maimonides, maybe a, maybe a student or around the same time. And he has an essay called Why Jewish Penis is Better Than Christian Penis. And he speaks explicitly about the sexual function of circumcision is to make a man come quickly, roll over, and fall asleep. And he will do this every time he has sex. A year at a time, his wife will be left sexually unsatisfied. And meanwhile, she's pregnant, and you know we got kids, right? But he, he says if the man is intact, she, he gets up to leave and she grabs him by the loins and says, come on back, I need another four hours. I really enjoy making love with you. And he contrasts these two as a benefit to the Jewish circumcised man because he doesn't want him to wake up and think of his wife. He wants him to study Torah. Otherwise, his heart and his you know, mind and intellect fall into his loins and he's essentially damaged goods for religion. It's true. And, uh, Are you familiar with that essay? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. And Maimonides also talks about um, women who have sex with intact men have trouble pulling themselves away from them. Um, and I think it's this is a really important point because we're living in an age in which this is, this is not how you sell the practice anymore. <laughs> right? You don't tell people that it's detrimental to male sexual experience because we're living in a post-sexual revolution era. So that's not how you sell it, and you won't hear that a lot. But of course, um, throughout much of Jewish history and Gentile history, people have known that, that circumcision has detrimental effects on sexuality. Um, no, 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 of course not. Of course not. But, but it, it, I mean, the other thing on this point that I think is important to talk about also is that um, I, people have a tendency to sort of want to know well, wh why, do, why do people circumcise? What's the reason? What's the reason? And there is no one reason. It's a, it's a cultural practice that's deeply embedded, and, and the way these sorts of practices work is they – move along like a snowball collecting reasons as they go so it's not like someone had this brilliant idea of oh you know we want to we want people to enjoy sex less so they can have more kids and have more time to study or it it these things don't work that way these are um extemporaneous sort of um what is it called post post factum or something I, i'm not sure what the latin is but it the the, the rationales come after the fact the practice started for whatever historical reason it started. And then um, the way we make sense of the practice as a culture, that's what generates the reasons. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank you very much for this wonderful film. Actually, I come from China. In China, there is not such kind of cultural tradition to do this. And also another fact is, before I step into this room, I have no idea what is circumcision until I <laughs> look up my dictionary and find out what it is, and a little bit shocked. 
And um, uh, what I want to ask is that because in the title is sex, religion, and politics, I want to know a little bit about the politics part. What are the political implications that we can generate from this film? Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, politics to me is the taking of the ethical and making it broader. That's the essence to me of politics, is that you, um, you look at, and indeed political philosophy is a branch of ethical philosophy. So you take w the intuitions and um, sort of rational discourse around what's right and wrong, and you apply it to larger groups of people. Now, of course, circumcision, being a practice, being a routine practice in this country, is a very political uh, issue. And you need look no further than what happened earlier this summer in San Francisco when um, an intactivist by the name of Lloyd Schofield um, attempted to collect, uh, was successful in collecting enough signatures to put circumcision on a ballot in San Francisco. Um, and that would have, had it succeeded in staying on the ballot, that would have gone to a vote. And the people of San Francisco would have voted whether or not non-therapeutic circumcision of a minor was legal. They sought to make it illegal. And there was a huge political battle fought over this. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, what I consider to be the, the best organized minority in the history of democracy, American Jews, um, took this very seriously. And they shut it down in a very profound way and very effectively and very quickly. They got a judge to take this off the ballot. But not only did they get a judge to take it off the ballot in San Francisco, they were successful in passing legislation to prevent anyone from ever putting circumcision on any ballot in any San, uh, California county going forward. So uh, AB 768, I believe, was the name of the, of the bill. Um, so you can see, and of course, this generated an enormous amount of press and attention, and um, everyone was talking about this. Okay, and uh, now for the religion. A lot of people shied away. There was a little talk about the covenant role, and geez, is there some other way to symbolize the covenant? Absolutely. Um, and I don't, there are people in my film who wisely shied away from talking about the religious issue, um, and I do not. And I'm speaking about this publicly now. And what I tried to suggest in the film is that if you take what I say seriously, if you take the empirical evidence that I'm presenting and you accept what I'm saying, and we don't get into an argument about health benefits or sexual pleasure, and you don't try and argue with me on those points, which some people do, but I think the evidence is pretty compelling. So if you don't argue with me on that, you have two choices as a Jew, as a religious person. Um, this could apply to other religions too. I speak as a Jew. On the one hand, you have what Heshi Warsh said in the film, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is what I promised. I'm an abuser, but God told me to do it, and I'm going to do it. That is, in a nutshell, religious fundamentalism. So that's a, that's, that's a consistent position. Accepting the empirical evidence and saying God told me to do this, so I'm going to do it anyway. The other option is what I'm suggesting, which is that the human enterprise and human ethics has always played a central and key and important role in the Jewish tradition. In fact, that's what I love about the Jewish tradition. I love the chutzpah 
of arguing with God itself if something bothers your conscience. And to me, that's what's always made the Jewish tradition exciting and dynamic and able to evolve with the times. Um, and that's the choice. And I think if people understand that and accept that, I think um, most people are going to break my way. Um, my question is, the basis of the shunning, like, where does that come from? Does that come from, like, the Old Testament, or does that come from the Talmud, or where does that tradition of, like, somebody who's not circumcised kind of get shunned in the community? There is no basis. Um, look, circumcision is, we shouldn't make any bones about this. Circumcision, circumcision is one of the central Jewish practices of all the Jewish practices. I think that's fair to say. Uh, and throughout Jewish history, um, it's grown in importance, if anything, especially um, as uh, other outside cultures criticize Jews for it. The rabbis, in their wisdom, you know, I, I think this is one of those sort of very brilliant strategic moves. You know, if someone's going to criticize you for being the people of the body and not the people of the spirit, you say, well, damn straight, we're the people of the body. And that becomes an even more important part of the way you identify yourself against the outside world. Um, so there are a lot of historical reasons for why this practice is so central and why it's seen as so important. Um, but if you go down to the nuts and bolts of it, which, you know, I've been doing lately, there's really nothing an intact male, Jewish male cannot do ritually. Zero. The, the Paschal Lamb, which you heard in the film, is a sacrifice that hasn't been brought for over 2,000 years and won't be, we don't know when it's going to be brought again, if ever. It's not something that's practiced anymore. And there is no other ritual exclusion for an intact Jewish male. Um, there, I mean, <laughs> there are people who may use their political and religious authority to persecute families who don't circumcise their children, but I think that's just cruel and unusual punishment, especially considering that you're punishing a boy for this, the sins, in quotations, of their parents. Um, and there's really no actual basis in Jewish law for that. Um, it's a sort of, I guess, there are little ritual things that you might do, but again, it's and I keep coming back to this, but I honestly believe that both from a Jewish perspective and from an American perspective, the shame argument, even though I defeated it in the film with what Raja Halwani said about shame, which I thought was brilliant, the, the, the real question is whether shame is merited or not. And he used the example of interracial marriage in which there definitely was an element of shame. I would argue that you don't even have to go to Raja's argument. Um, I don't see it. I've been traveling around the country now for uh, about five weeks, six weeks, uh, meeting with all sorts of folks, including many families who have decided to leave their boys intact. And I always ask them, you know, have they experienced any kind of locker room shame? Or, you know, you hear about how, how horrible it is to be intact in a circumcising culture. And no. So no, just no. It's a figment of people's imagination. And I would argue that it's also a figment of people's imagination on the Jewish side. And that sounds weird, but who's going to know that your kid isn't circumcised? I mean, they're going to pull his pants down? Like, what? how's that going to happen? I have to wonder, too, with, with the shame argument, even 
say for a minute that there really was shame, that, that an uncircumcised boy or man was shunned and shamed by his faith community. Is that your fault as a father? Did you inflict this on him? Or I think we have to blame the faith community themselves. They're the ones doing the shunning and shaming. They're the ones who are doing something ethically wrong, not the father who chose not to circumcise his son. For the sake of argument, let's assume that there's harm. That, that Sorry, let's assume that there is shame and shunning going on. And let's even assume for the sake of argument that that can legitimately be construed as harm, which I think from a certain perspective it can. In other words, you've done or failed to do something for your child that has led to them being shamed or shunned. Um, as a parent, as a prospective parent, as a hypothetical parent, um, I don't want to um, teach my children that they need to just fit in. I mean, for heaven's sake, if you're a religious Jew, there are many, many more things that you're doing that will bring shame onto your children than not having them circumcised. Wearing a yarmulke, you know, uh, not eating non-kosher food, um, you know, taking a day out of the week where you don't do anything that everyone else is doing. I mean, there's so many things that you do that would bring shame on your child. And the bottom line is, if it's worth doing, again, it comes back to what Raja said. The question is not whether or not a person feels shame. The question is whether the shame is merited or not. And yes, absolutely. If a community is shaming or shunning uh, an individual for something that their parent didn't do to them, that community should feel shame about that. Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman, in his book Covenant of Blood, mentions that, I believe he speaks of the US, 13% of Jews believe, for instance, that the Bible is the literal word of God written down by humans. And the other 87% are essentially, yeah, it was written by humans. And there, there's this range of fundamentalist to secular. And in, in a sense, I've wondered myself, for Jews who are not very observant, or, or bad boy Jews, right? You bring your kid to shul, you circumcise them, and you're considered still one of the community. It doesn't cost you anything, right? So it shows that you're still Jewish even though you don't practice at all and you smoke and ride a motorcycle and, or what all those things, right? So in a sense, circumcision, I wondered, it functions as, see, I'm still one of you even though I don't do anything but go to shul on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But then, on the other hand, there are Gentiles across America who circumcise right and left that don't have this religious obligation. They were just, let's say, psychologically and physically traumatized, and they want to redo it to make themselves normal. That could also apply to the Jewish community. So my question is, what's your sense of balance between those two poles? Is it just re-traumatization, or how much do non-observant Jews use circumcision as a means of saying, see, I'm still one of you even though I don't practice. Maybe my son will, but it's not for me. Well, to be honest, I don't think most people think about it. I mean, that's the bottom line that I've found, is that the vast majority of people who circumcise their sons in this country don't give it a second thought. And I can't tell you how many people have come to my screenings and said just that, mothers or, or whatever, you know, we didn't even know it was an option not to circumcise. And so I think it's just such, it's, on, it's so deeply embedded that people aren't really forced to confront the choice. The, the, 
it's not seen even as a choice. It hasn't until very recently been seen as a choice in this culture. The, when people like me speak out about this, and there are many, you know, um, there are many other people who speak out about against circumcision, it forces people to think of it as a choice. And when people, when the people did what they did in San Francisco by legislating against doing this to minors, they shifted the discourse even further, which is what I think a lot of people found very threatening because they were no longer talking about it as a choice. They were saying this should not be a parental choice. This should be the choice of the individual. And that's a move away. But again, that's three steps removed from where the vast majority of people in this, cu in this culture have been for, you know, the better part of 50 years. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.